I'm Jasmine. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been, have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome, especially if you're newish or visiting, it's great to have you with us. My name's Jerry, I'm one of the ministers here. Um, and I started my ministry training at a big church. I was one of six student ministers. Uh, so, you know, we studied at Bible college and we'd volunteer some at church. And um, my favorite time was 4 p.m. on a Friday because the senior minister, Ray, would get all of us together in a room and we'd work top, uh, workshop Bible talks and pastoral case studies. So he'd tell us real situations that he'd experienced. He'd anonymize all the details. And he'd get us to discuss how we'd support people and navigate these tricky situations. 
This was near 10 years ago now, so I don't remember much, except one thing that Ray just kept coming back to, and he was so troubled about this. He'd say, people confided in me about all kinds of suffering and sin. I've heard about abuse and affairs. So many men, men sit across from me with like such urgency about their porn addictions. People have told me all kinds of things that you'd struggle with, things I never thought I'd hear. But not once, not once, has someone come to me and told me that they were struggling with greed. And I remember thinking, maybe you're just not preaching on it right or asking the right questions. We could address this. I was so dumb. <laughs> uh, Jesus warns us about money more than he warns us about anything else. And we read those warnings and we don't want to overreact. God doesn't want us to be careless with our money. We're not filthy rich like those people. Greed, is it such a big deal for us? I was so wrong because Jesus seems to think it was a big deal. The greatest cultural pressure we face in James isn't changing on sexual ethics. It's the hustle. It's the pressure to build wealth. And Jesus loves people enough to warn them about that danger. And it's why he tells a story we've just heard. So today we'll consider the story, what it meant then when Jesus told it and what the challenge is for us now. So let's pray as we get started. Father God, we ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The story Jesus tells is about a dishonest manager. It's a parable, uh, which is a common, common teaching tool that Jesus used. It was memorable, but it was kind of hard to understand. You had to chew on it. And Jesus told parables not because he wanted to give us a life lesson, like the boy who cried wolf. Jesus told parables to reveal something about himself, his mission, and the nature of his kingdom. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, had been keeping a close eye on Jesus, and they weren't the bad guys. They were Jewish leaders who taught scripture and cared about God's people being pure. And they were so passionate about this that they set very high standards for how a faithful person should live. They were highly respected by just about everyone but Jesus. We read in verse 14 at the end of the passage that the Pharisees who loved money were listening to what Jesus is saying and they're sneering. Jesus responds, you justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This new Jewish teacher on the scene was claiming to have God's authority to know hearts and to judge accordingly. And he was making all the wrong friends. He was eating in the homes of sinners and outsiders. And right before telling this parable, Jesus has just told three parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, all to illustrate how much God loves the lost. And if the Pharisees can't rejoice when sinners come home, then the Pharisees have a different agenda to God because reaching the lost is what his mission's all about. So he tells a story to his followers, knowing that the Pharisees are listening. It's about a rich owner of an estate and his manager. 
in other parables, like the prodigal son, the authority figure is a stand-in for God, and that's not true here. Jesus, I think, is just picking a common situation in his day, and it's not meant to be an allegory. Most employees relied on belonging to a household business owned by someone richer than them. And these household businesses would often trade in farm produce, and everyone would report to the master of the farm slash household slash business. He's the boss. So the boss gets a report that his middle manager has been losing him a lot of money because he hasn't been doing his job. So he calls the manager into his office, the report is correct, and the boss says, you're fired. Hand me all your ledgers. The manager walks out thinking to himself, I'm done for. What am I gonna do for work? I don't want a job in manual labor. I've hardly lifted a finger here. Where am I gonna live? I've only maintained my social status because I belong to this household. I'm not gonna beg. So he hatches a plan and it's clever, it's shrewd. He's got a little time to pack up his office and he's gonna use it. He looks through all the unpaid invoices and he sets up urgent meetings with the people that owe his boss money. He gives a businessman who owes the boss a great sum of olive oil, a 50% discount, and the debtor can't resist the deal he pays up. The guy who owes his boss a great sum of wheat gets a 20% discount, and he pays up. And through these slide deals, he leverages his position in his household to win favor with other households and make friends for the future. It's very impressive networking, and even his boss is impressed when he finds out. That's the story, that's point one. What does it mean? Point two, let's look at the meaning then for those listening in real time. Uh, this parable wasn't financial advice, nor was it Jesus approving of dishonest behavior at work. This is a parable. So it primarily really reveals something about Jesus, his mission and the nature of his kingdom. Jesus does interpret it for us in verses 8b and 9, and then he goes on in verses 10 to 15 with some more general comments. Let's read 8b. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Exactly what Jesus' interpretation means is a little confusing. You're not alone. Even the Bible uh, scholars find this confusing. I think there's a few faithful takes, but the most straightforward one is probably right. Jesus is saying if a dishonest manager can be shrewd in the ways of this world, which are dishonest and unrighteous, then how much more should God's people, the Jews, the children of light, be shrewd with what they are given? How much more should Israel and its leaders act in alignment to the kingdom that Jesus is bringing? If the world can be shrewd for their agenda, how much more should God's people be shrewd for his agenda? This would have stung uh, to hear Jesus saying, you, God's chosen people, children of light, the non-Jews are more shrewd than you. Jesus had observed what the Jewish leaders were investing in, he knew what they loved. It was foolish, it was temporary, they loved money. They had excluded people rather than including them as friends. They were inward facing and selfish, not outward facing as they were meant to be as God's people. 
The Pharisees could have used money to make friends out of those they'd written off. And this doesn't mean to buy friends. If we stay consistent with how Jesus talks about money in Luke's gospel, I think he means they could have shared their money by welcoming in the poor and the outsider into their homes, by extending hospitality. This would have inevitably widened their social circles and created mutual relationships so that when everything they'd invested in disappeared, they'd be welcomed into those homes. I think eternal dwellings translates better as homes that will last. The homes that won't last are their lovely estates in Jerusalem, nor the beautiful temple. The homes that will last includes outsiders and sinners and Gentiles. It's a wise warning for their generation because history tells us that Jerusalem, all their estates, the temple was decimated in 60 AD. It was a terrible time. But as Israel was being torn down, something else was being built up. The early church, made up of Jews and Gentiles and outsiders, all gathered under the same roofs in the household of God's new people, spiritual homes that no army could destroy, homes that would be eternal. And that's how this parable reveals Jesus' identity and mission. He was wise and shrewd, not foolish. He wasn't troubled by the temporary. He set his eyes on eternity and he walked to the cross. He was inclusive of anyone who'd come to him humbly, the poor, the lonely, the outsider, those far away from God, like you and I. He came for the sinners that the Pharisees were so quick to dismiss, and he was just dismayed to see how those who represented God had got it so wrong. In verses 10 to 12 are his ongoing judgment of this. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? This seems like a truism that any rabbi could have said, Whoever's trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. Of course, common sense, who disagree? And it's because it's so undeniable and obvious that Jesus holds it up as a charge against the Pharisees. Israel, you were trusted with being God's chosen people. You were set apart to be children of light to the nations so the nations could see who God is. You were stewards of this and you failed. You can't be trusted with true riches. In fact, Pharisees, you don't even serve God anymore. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus goes as far as to say, you hate God and you shame him. You're devoted to wealth and you honor your possessions, So money is your God. Is he exaggerating to make a point? Surely you can be wealthy and faithful to God. Most of the people in this room are in the top 1% of global wealth. Their problem wasn't how much money they had, but what they did with their money and what the money had done to their hearts. 
Jesus is contrasting wealth and God as two masters that are incompatible and masters must be served. This quote by Jolby Green is helpful to us here. According to Luke, the rule of wealth is manifest in theft and exploitation, hoarding, conspicuous consumption, and the more general disregard for outsiders and persons of low status and need. When God is your master, a life like that is just incompatible with serving him. Jesus did the complete opposite, so his kingdom, so his followers. It makes sense why Jesus and the Pharisees were at odds. The Pharisees loved money and status. Jesus loved the lost and the lowly. Masters must be served. Service to wealth would involve hoarding and conspicuous consumption. Service to God involves sharing your life, your wealth, to love the lost, the outsider, and the lonely. That's point two, the meaning then. The challenge now remains, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And it's a challenge to take this seriously. We can easily classify greed as one of those private white collar sins. But hoarding wealth and being too stingy to share money with those who need it are not as acceptable as we'd like to think. According to Jesus, it's devastating. His grief and his outrage wasn't just reserved for the Pharisees. It applies to us too. Yet while we were still greedy and selfish and outsiders, he was so generous to us. He willingly took on the payment for our sin on the cross. In that sense, we cannot serve money. It's completely incompatible with who we are when Jesus is our master. In our context here, most of us know that we're wealthy, but we don't want to be foolish with our money. That's not what God wants either. So we're cautious in how we save, how we invest. And as a Christian, I would never believe that I love money. I'd never call it my master. Jesus is my master. We live in the freedom from the power of a cruel master like wealth, yet it still fights to rule. It still wants to take hold of our heart and it's a slippery master. It's the greatest cultural pressure we face. Now this is my friend Brendan. He's a wedding photographer and there was one wedding that he will never forget. He had a great day, it was a really long day. He was driving home and he was thinking, oh, I can't wait to go to bed. But good practice is to take my camera straight to the office and back up my raw photos, just in case. So he's exhausted, but he does it anyway. He goes to the office, backs up his camera to his laptop and to hard drives, and he goes home. That night, someone breaks in and steals everything. Cameras, lenses, laptop, all his hard drives, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of stuff. No wedding photos. Brendan was wise. He did the right thing to minimize risk. 
but he could have never been in control of that situation. We don't really think that we'll get financially blindsided because we try to be wise and minimize risk, and that is a wise thing to do. But Jesus says the only reliable thing about worldly wealth is that it's temporary. The only reliable thing is that it goes away. People get too sick to work all the time. People get scammed out of money all the time. People make the wrong investments all the time. And our insurances and our backup plans make fools out of us when we think they help us be in control. So lose control. Don't lose self-control or be financially irresponsible, but lose control in order that God can actually be in control of your life. The reason you're gonna be okay when you suddenly lose your job is not your savings account. It's because you know your heavenly Father provides for your daily needs. Your insurance policies promise you that nothing bad will happen. But God says, I will be with you when the bad thing happens. The reason you're secure is not your current or potential mortgage, but because God has prepared an eternal home for you that was paid for by the Lord Jesus. Wealth is the kind of master who disguises his demands as reasonable and responsible. He says, budget cuts at work. Just stay a little bit longer at work. Prove your value, prove that you're indispensable. Just stay a bit longer. He says, oh, it's good to give to overseas ministry partners, but just wait till you earn a little bit more. Just wait till you've put a little bit more away. The fear that leads us to make those small decisions to help us feel in control, that's the time where we put our loyalty to our real master at risk. And God knows our hearts when we do this. He knows that instead of leaning on my sovereign God when I fear the future, I'm relieved to know that my investment portfolio is diversified, whatever that means. He knows that there are times that when I was unsettled, I've gone to shopping for a dopamine hit instead of coming to him. God knows, and that's a good thing, because he loves you. He doesn't demand anything from you. He wants to reassure you that you don't have to be in control of your life. He already is, and he's working for your good. If, like me, the love of money has had those small wins in your heart without you even noticing, bring that before God in praying about it regularly. Ask him to help you lose control so that he can have it. I've been praying the Lord's Prayer daily since meditating on this passage, and it's been so good. It reminds me where my daily bread comes from. It realigns my heart with God's. The love of money starts in our hearts, but how it takes hold of us, how it takes hold of us is determined by our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, earthly goods are given to be used, not collected. Hoarding is idolatry. I read this quote and I thought it was a bit too much until I thought, yeah, he's probably right. I was defensive because it's not wrong to have a comfortable lifestyle, right? We all have this internal standard about what is too lavish, too much consumption, except that standard keeps creeping higher and higher the more money we have. I slept just fine with cotton sheets for years 
Now I want nothing but linen. My antidote isn't to sit around feeling guilty about my comfortable lifestyle or my linen sheets. It's to give, to use what God has entrusted to me, to invest towards the things I know my master cares about, the lost, the outsider, and the lowly. The antidote for us is to be a steward. The steward's money belongs to their master. Stewards invest on behalf of their master's business. And we know all about our master's business because we know Jesus. To be a steward is to get on with what our Lord cares about, to get to work. When we do, we don't think so much about how much we do or don't have. There's not a lot of room for fretting. When we do give, when we act like stewards, we come to realise that our hearts have been changed without us even meaning for them to change. The Holy Spirit has worked to help them go from being inward-facing to more outward-facing. We find out that our priorities are realigned to God's. So I have a few practical challenges for us as we finish. First, Christians are generous givers. That's who we are. We're not stingy or we're not hoarders. It's who we're saved to be. Giving can sting initially, but it usually doesn't last for long. And it will also bring you joy because you're living out your purpose as a steward and it's good for you. Earlier this year, we did a series on wealth and generosity and I found this so helpful, so convicting. I made some decisions that I still haven't acted on. So this includes adjusting my giving to St. James as our household income has increased. So this is my reminder to you uh, to take the opportunity this week to uh, do the thing that you thought about doing earlier this year. Second, be shrewd, be wise in what you give to. Not for your own agenda, but for your masters, for the lost and the lonely. Even with the rising cost of living, I think every one of us should seriously consider sponsoring a compassion child. For $48 a month, a vulnerable kid in another part of the world gets food, healthcare, education, and discipleship. That's less than 1% of the monthly median Aussie income. You can make an automated decision that takes 10 minutes and change the future of a child's life. That's a wise use of money. A few weeks ago, uh, Bertier, the principal of St. Patrick's Theological College in Madagascar, who are one of our ministry partners, visited us, and we heard how God is blessing the gospel work in Madagascar. We're hearing about hundreds of the lost coming home to Christ. That's only possible because graduates from St. Patrick's were equipped and sent to do that. And I don't know if you remember this, but I was just blown away about how much the annual cost to run the college was. It was only 5,000 USD. To put that in comparison, that's the combination of just two 9 a.m. two 9 a.m.ers tax returns this last year, money we don't even usually budget for. Two households at St. James could bankroll revival in Madagascar without even feeling it. That would be shrewd. Finally, share your money as a way of sharing your life. For some of us, it feels far easier to throw money at good causes than to give up our time. And this word is relevant for us too because a big part of Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees was that they were too inward-facing to invest in the outsider. 
Sharing your money was an act of hospitality then and it still is now. And Jesus is calling us to do something that he first did for us, welcoming outsiders and strangers as friends with generous welcome that grows to a rich sense of belonging. It's a collective call to be the children of light God wants his people to be. And yes, this means looking out for the newcomer when we gather here on a Sunday, but it applies to our whole lives too. What if nuclear households committed to including others for family dinner? You could share your life by sharing your family holidays. What if we committed to including non-Christian friends at every dinner party, every birthday celebration we hosted? St. James could refuse to let people be left behind on Christmas or lonely on Saturday nights. We've been set free from the master of wealth to live the kind of lives that invest in Jesus' kingdom. We want people to look at our lives and see our devotion to our master, that we love Jesus with all we have. We want that. And he's empowered us to do it by his spirit. He's called us to share our wealth as an indispensable way in which we serve him. Brothers and sisters, we are freed to give because our Lord has given us everything first. Let's pray. Generous Father, we ask that what you have taught us from your word would refresh us today and take root for our good. Transform us by your spirit to love the outsider, the lost, and the lowly, like our Lord Jesus. Of all our gifts, we are most grateful for him. For his honour we ask. Amen.